Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, I have nothing to add to what we've just sung. Please bring about all those things in our lives as we look now at your word. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're still in 2 Corinthians, unsurprisingly, but um, we're going to chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. So if you could please turn there now. If you happen to have a device with multiple options for translations, um, we will be reading from the New King James Version. I found this to be an extraordinarily difficult text to prepare. The obvious problem is that given their connections to the ones before, I really should have dealt with these verses along with the preceding ones. But then we would have had a very long sermon, or if I'd managed to shorten it, we might have jumped over some important concepts. The other possibilities, I could have just um, pretended these verses weren't here and gone on to something else, but then I would have... Colin. Colin thinks that's a great idea. <laughs> but then I would have skimmed over the same concepts and missed out on the context. So, although the skipping option was very tempting, I knew the Holy Spirit had included these words for a specific purpose, and so we must look at them. So as to deal with both, both context and concept, I have titled the sermon, The Story and the Stuff. So I'm going macro and micro. The story is the macro view, the big picture. And we will stand back and see how today's text fits into the ones before it. Then we'll do the micro thing. We'll zoom into the verses 5 and 6, and we'll see how Paul is also teaching the reader some things about the nature of God and the consequences for the relationship believers have with them. That's the stuff. So let's read the passage now, and I'll start from verse 1 because it keeps a sense of the whole thing. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservant, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, I'll start with a story. It's the easy bit, and I'm going to paraphrase what we've just read. Now, this makes me very nervous, um, because I, I really want to handle God's word very carefully. Um, so I'm going to say it like this. If you happen to have the message as a version of the Bible at home, you'll know that it's very helpful for understanding what's written in Scripture. But it's not a Bible to preach a sermon from. So I'm just putting out a bit of a health and safety warning here. <laughs> okay. So Paul says, I might be under attack by the Judaizers, but I didn't decide to do this on my own, you know. I was given it by God in the same powerful way that he graciously saved me. That knowledge constantly encourages and energizes me, 
But it also requires that I must not bring people the truth of the gospel in any shameful or dishonest way. With God as my witness, I believe that the way I do things shows that I'm obedient in this. Now you might think that such a pure and powerful message would always do the trick, but it doesn't. You see, there are dark forces at work who aren't afraid to use every trick possible to blind people so that they cannot see even the purest and brightest of lights, the light of God. This doesn't mean that there's no hope for them. This is because I preach Christ Jesus the Lord and never myself. On my own account, I certainly have nothing to offer. God does it all. My job is merely to be his slave for your good, to work hard on any task he gives me. You know this through your own experience. The very same God who made the world and the heavens by his power was able to shine his glorious light in your own hearts so that you could understand his glory and might and majesty and be saved. He did this through Jesus and only Jesus. So that's the basics. Paul's arguing that he's not the bad guy. If the gospel seems to bounce off some folk, that's because Satan has made them blind. However, not all is not lost because there is a much, much greater power than Satan, the power of Jesus Christ. It is the brightest light ever, able to chase away any darkness. And Paul is so convinced of this that he is prepared to work as hard as a slave for the sake of the gospel. If God had the power to make everything, then he definitely has the power to chase away the darkness. It worked for you. You got that? Make sense? Good. Hopefully we have a few questions going around in your mind and if I've done my job properly then we'll cover those as we go on to look at the stuff. So what can we learn from these verses that will help us to live in a way that glorifies God? I'll start with verse 5 which begins with the necessity for humility of heart. It reads... We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. Now one of the many accusations that's frequently made against Christians is that we think ourselves better than anyone else. And I'm sure you've had this line thrown at you. Who made you so perfect that you can criticize? Now, of course, every single one of us knows that that isn't true at all because we have all sinned and fallen short. We are sinning and falling short. And we will sin and fall short. Not one of us is perfect or ever will be in this life. And as it so happens, I've recently heard a great reply to that that accusation. It is, no, Christians aren't perfect. They're just dead people who are made alive. And I think that's a great line because it's such a curious idea that hopefully your accuser will be moved to ask, what on earth do you mean by that? And then maybe you'll be able to have a proper conversation with them. Whilst it's helpful to have a meaningful reply, it's a much better thing for believers to conduct themselves in such a way that accusations cannot be made at all. If we are going to be open about what we believe, then whatever we say and do must point to our Saviour, never ourselves. A very common example of messing that one up happens right here in the pulpit. You've possibly heard a preacher who spends a lot of time talking about themselves. And whilst that might be funny and engaging, it often has nothing at all to do 
with the Lord. And it's like the opposite of that old saying. When you point at somebody, you must be careful because there's only one finger pointing in their direction and three fingers pointing back at yourself. In the case of the preacher who's focusing on the three fingers pointed at themselves and not at the one pointing to Jesus, you can be sure that they are wasting a very special opportunity to preach the gospel. You know, when we stand here, we don't have very much time to speak to you in your life. So to waste it is not a great idea. And although we're thinking about somebody else in this case, we really do need to ask ourselves the question, which way are our fingers pointing when we speak to others about the Lord? When we look to Scripture, as we properly should, for direction, there are many examples in the Bible of handling the gospel properly. If you just read through some of Paul's sermons in the New Testament, and for that matter any of the Apostles' sermons, you'll see that they didn't waste time on long exhortations for moral reform or lists of rules to follow so that you'd be right with God. They just preached and lived Jesus. And so that's what we ought to do too. The final confirmation from the, for this principle comes from the original text. The Greek word used here for preach is kuruso. It means to proclaim publicly or herald or act as a public crier. For example, the town official who makes the proclamation in a, t a public gathering. You know, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. That's how it begins. Caruso was also used for the person who, whose duty it was to proclaim loudly and extensively the coming of an earthly king. And that nicely parallels the fact that the gospel is a clear proclamation that the king of kings is returning. So Caruso provides us with this understanding of never me always thee. It confirms that the announcement we make ought to point only to one other person in particular, and that is Jesus Christ. I found this quote from the traditional famous dead guy, in this case a fellow named R.C.H. Lenski, and he says, the point to be noted is that to preach is not to argue, reason, dispute, or convince by intellectual proof, against all of which a keen intellect may bring counter-argument. We simply state in public or testify to all men the truth that God bids us state. No argument can assail the truth presented in this announcement or testimony. Men either believe the truth as all sane men should or refuse to believe it as only fools venture to do. The next point of discussion is Paul's deliberate use of both the usual names of the Lord. He writes that we ought only to preach Christ Jesus. Now, perhaps you've sat here and wondered why sometimes we use Jesus and sometimes we use Christ and sometimes we use both. Although he would answer to all these versions of his name, they do reflect important distinctions in his nature and person. Remember that Jesus was unlike anyone who ever existed. No one can be like him, because he was both fully God and fully man at the same time. If hearing that does your head in, then you are in good company, because it ought to. You see, if God is really who he says he is, then we should never ever be able to understand him. In this case, the question is how these two states could possibly exist at the same time. Well, personally, I welcome this perplexity as a comfort since it is evidence of how great God is compared to me. 
If I knew exactly how this God-man thing worked, then it would mean that God is pretty much like me. But he isn't. Since I can only confess to a high degree of confusion on the matter, therefore God cannot be like me. He must be above me and something really special. And if that is so, the claims that he makes about his character are certainly true. It follows then that he has the capacity to make good on the promises that he makes for those who take Christ as their Lord. It is a very good thing that God is weird. To resolve some of that weirdness, we have these two names for the Saviour. And of course there are some others, but these are the ones we're talking about today. The first, Jesus, is just his name as a man. So if Mary needed to call him inside for dinner when he was outside playing as a small boy... Jesus is what she would be yelling out the back door. Likewise, as a grown man, if you were looking for a good carpenter, then you'd also be asking for Jesus. Although most likely it would have taken the form Jesus of Nazareth, which was his formal identification, since it turns out that Jesus actually wasn't that uncommon a name at that time. It is the, na- the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Yeshua, or Joshua, if you like, and it means saviour. Next, let's talk about the name Christ. It literally means the anointed one and is the name given to the expected Messiah of Israel. There are three significant scriptural aspects to this anointing bit. Firstly, it's the visible sign of an appointment to office. Secondly, it is a sign of a sacred relationship being anointed and the consequent high importance or value of the person anointed. And lastly, it is a sign of the connection to the Holy Spirit of the anointed one. And all of these are true of Christ. The other term we need to explore, Messiah, was the title of a very specific concept in Judaism for a long, long time. There are many Old Testament scriptures that foretell the coming of a man who was chosen and appointed by God to be his instrument of salvation for the Jews. And for most Jews it was held that this would take the form of some great and warlike leader who would crush Israel's enemies and restore her to her proper place among the nations. Nobody expected a baby born in a humble manger who would be crucified to save not just Israel, but anyone who would call him Lord. And yet that was exactly God's plan to restore all of creation. So Messiah really describes an office or a job, if you like, rather than just being a person's name. We can say that if Jesus was his personal name, then Christ is his official name as Messiah. So with the meaning of these two titles combined, we understand we ought to preach not just the man Jesus as a moral and ethical example who had personally experienced real life, but in a much larger way, we preach Christ Jesus, the man who was also Messiah, the anointed one of God, who miraculously also was God. We are to preach him so in order that people might know that life is not pointless or hopeless, that God exists and that he has reached out to rescue us permanently from our sin and shame, that Christ Jesus really is Lord of heaven and earth and has the power over all of heaven and earth. Now, I suspect that you will have heard these lines and one form or another, many, many times. And to a large extent, they 
They just pass through our heads with no impact. I'm going to ask you to stop, please, and think about the meaning of what you have heard, the meaning of the gospel. What really are our chances as sinners before a holy God when the only way to please Him is perfect obedience to a frankly impossible set of laws? There's no chance at all. We are only doomed to fail and thereby to suffer the consequences of His anger forever after we die. Yet there is a real alternative. For in Christ Jesus, there is a great and certain reward, one that we could never achieve on our own. Eternal life with God, no more suffering, no more sin, no more tears. Given the proper depth of thought, you have to agree that such a message is right up there in personal importance to everyone, to you. And this is why we must become very careful in how we deliver it, because its importance is not ever our own. We may be the heralds, we may proclaim it, but we do not own it. Its inestimable value does not rub off on us ever. Now, inestimable means too great to calculate, and that is a very appropriate description of the gospel. God planned it, God empowered it, and God executed it. No man contributed anything at all to the success of the appointed one's mission. Now Paul understood this very well. And I think this is why he ends verse 5 by saying that he is merely the bondservant of the Corinthian church for Jesus' sake. And that's pretty much the very opposite of what you might expect him to say, given the impact, the impact that he's had on this congregation. On the face of it, it looks like it was his efforts that created this church, and it's his efforts and continuing advice that sustains it. And I could understand in such circumstances that many of us would be tempted to imagine that we were the big cheese and that people ought to bow down to us and rush to execute our every whim and command. Yet Paul sets himself in entirely an opposite role, which is a good lesson for all who call Jesus Lord. He says he sees himself as their bondservant. So we can fully appreciate what that means. Let's see what it is. And it's not the only time that you'll come across this, this term in the New Testament, so it's good to know. The word bondservant in Greek is doulos. It describes someone who is bound to another in servitude. And it also expresses the idea of the slave's very close tie to their master of belonging to them, being obligated to them, and desiring to do their will. In sum, the will of the doulos was consumed, or better, subsumed, which is your second long word for today. And subsumed just means that it's completely absorbed into something else. So the doulos is subsumed in the will of their master. They set aside their own will and they take on the will of the master. And that's what Paul did. We've already talked about he could have rightly assumed a high office in the church. But we also have to think about what he was like outside it. By all accounts, he was a really, really intelligent guy. He was really, really well educated and he came from a wealthy family. 
and he could also claim Roman citizenship. Under worldly circumstances, he would have been the master. He would have been the one doing the subsuming. However, he set aside that possibility to work for the sake of his master and saviour. If you think about it, how could he be any different? Jesus himself was Paul's example. And he was a man who came from the humblest of backgrounds. And even when he began the work he was born for, he did not seek fame or fortune. Consider the scene in John 13, where he washes the disciples' feet. And also the very clear instruction that he gives the disciples on this particular matter in Matthew 20, 26 to 28. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's very clear then that the model given directly to Paul and the disciples was one of servanthood. And if that was true then, it's still true for us today because God does not change his mind. So perhaps it's time for each of us to undertake a bit of an internal review, to ask ourselves, do I have a problem with pride? Do I seek to be slave or master for the sake of Christ in my dealings day to day? Or do I demand recognition and service for whatever it is I do? That's uncomfortable thinking. And speaking for myself, since I've had a bit of a head start on this one through sermon preparation, I found that there is plenty of room for improvement. And I suspect that some reflection you may find the same. So we're left now with verse 6, and it's a beauty. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This verse is a very important bridge back to verses 3 and 4, which speak about how Satan has blinded so many in the world so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. For our part, it heals the space in our hearts that is filled with dismay when we think about the possibility of loved ones who are not believers never having the chance to believe because of that blindness. Verse 6 tells us that it is certainly not true that there is no hope, since if God had the power to make the earth and the heavens and everything everywhere to literally make light shine out of darkness by setting myriad suns in their place. He most certainly has the power to heal even the most blind of hearts so that they can see the face of Jesus. There is hope. What is also very special is that we can see in this verse the effect of that healing light, of Christ's saving grace. Those who believe in Christ will see the Son of God face to face, like this, like I'm speaking to you. We will see his glory. However, that privilege will never come to the unrepentant sinner. Before a person comes to salvation, there is a deep and wide chasm that lies between them and God. It was put there by sin. 
And the problem is that no amount of industrious, industrious bridge building through good deeds and behavior or spectacular long jump ability will ever get you to the other side. Because just one sin will make you fall to the bottom. Sin will cause God to turn his face away from you permanently. And this does not mean that he will just ignore you. Because he is holy. And his holiness requires that sin is punished and that awful and eternal punishment will certainly come when you die. And there is only one single possibility to change that certainty. And that is to repent of your sins and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And this is only possible because Jesus paid the penalty for your sins by dying on the cross. And in doing so, he built a bridge across that gap and created this reality of us seeing the Lord face to face to restore that relationship that was supposed to be when God created the world. If you're hearing this today as an unbeliever, and it sounds just like a load of nonsense to you, then please think deeply on how it says here in 2 Corinthians that you have been blinded. How does that make you feel? That you are blind? It doesn't have to be that way. I earnestly pray that the Lord will undo that blindness today so that you can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus and repent and be healed. That was Paul's mission, and it should also be ours. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for helping us to understand our part in your, your great mission. It is a privilege to have this chance to do that. And Lord, I pray that you would send us many opportunities to do what you have asked us to do. And through your Holy Spirit, you would enable us in those times to do the right things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.